Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Empathic Futures Lab podcast, uh, the show about human-focused futures for the environment in which we live. I'm Chris. And I'm Christian. And today we are discussing a topic. It's out of the Architectural Intelligence book uh, by Molly Wright Steenson. And it's a pretty fantastic book. I'd, I'd really recommend reading it, or at least to the extent that I've read it so far, which is about just the first pretty. chapter and part of the second chapter. But I'm enjoying it nonetheless. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, okay. So I don't for... think I've even, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I don't even think I've gotten that far, but uh, one of the things that came up is all the references and quote-unquote architects, I guess, that she brings up, even in the in the, the very beginning of the book, and it kind of traces through a couple different uh, individuals' works, but that pretty much immediately led you, and then after that, me, into, uh, into new books, <laughs> so it's hard, it's hard to... Uh, finish the one when you feel like you got to get into this other stuff before you can understand right. her book. Right. right. Plus, I just feel um, like it's a it's an important book. I should be taking notes throughout it. So, like, I try not to read it unless I'm in the mindset where I can, like, really understand it and really yeah. take notes and delve into it. And those times really are not as often as I would like since I'm always exhausted after work. But, <laughs> Anyways, Such is life. Yeah. So the first topic that we wanted to talk about from this book, I guess, I guess kind of from this book, but really it's just, it, it. I think it's kind of a normal flow even from the podcast that we've been having previously, uh, especially I think there are some overlaps or potential overlaps anyway from the last uh, three um, and then even just installations last time in general, could really lead towards this topic, uh, which is pattern languages, as developed. A pattern language. A pattern language is Mm. the book that sort of set this off, uh, along with A Timeless Way of Building. It was written by Christopher Alexander and his team over there at Berkeley. He happens to be the first chapter out of this uh, Architectural Intelligences book. So that's that's where this reference is for. Go ahead. Oh, and I, I can imagine that, you know, we'll have this episode, so we'll kind of work through this through Molly Wright Steenson's book, and we'll have an episode, we'll have this episode about Alexander, and then we'll probably have one about Cedric Price at some point, and then whoever the third person, Nicholas Negroponte, I think. Nicholas uh, Negroponte. Is, is... Chapter two is on this Richard Saul, Richard Saul Werman, um, apparently okay. founded TED which is super cool. Oh, I had, yeah, I had yeah, no yeah. idea. Right. So we'll, Architect founded you know, Ted. We'll probably end up having a, having a chapter about each of these people. I and then also hopefully some written content uh, on the website as well that you can check out and then we'll include links that we think are interesting. Yeah. Oh, it'll definitely be in our mailer. It'll definitely be in our, yeah, the newsletter, web mailer. It, it, we haven't mentioned that on podcast yet, but if you want to sign up, We'll put a link in the uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. You should definitely sign up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it'll it'll have some links this week regarding that, as well as other news, other big news coming through, like uh, Bjark Ingels joining WeWork. I'm super excited about that. Yeah, I mean, what is that? That's pretty. That's pretty incredible. But I suppose we I don't know maybe cover that. Yeah, maybe we can cover that in the future at some point. We have like a news episode or something. I'm sure it'll come up. Uh, just like I'm sure we'll have another episode on on pattern languages at some point this is probably not the end of it um, yeah especially considering we both have only read the intro 
Yeah, and kind of skimmed <laughs> skimmed through the patterns and uh, uh, yeah. way I don't know. Need need to read Timeless Way of Building. Yep. That's probably gonna be the most important. Right. At this point, it's looking at pattern languages is more about how it was organized and uh, what the content is more than actually delving into the content. But anyway, I guess I should start by saying what is a pattern language, and then we can sort of get into our discussion. So Alexander's idea was that, along with his collaborators. Uh, was that what there's there's sort of this language um, to creating a building I think um, it's not something that's entirely unique uh, Rem Koolhaas did you know his elements of architecture Venice Biennial a few years back though of course that came way after this book was written which was I think early 80s is when this was written uh, uh, 77 77 okay so late 70s but basically the idea is that as you go through the design process you can sort of pick these uh i don't know if you call them like small diagrams or small anecdotes regarding design um i can pull up a couple examples See, the first one i flipped to is pattern 182 eating atmosphere oh <laughs> so it's like uh you know what kind of atmosphere do people have when they're eating together right and then he goes through a quick summary of what that is and then uh how do you how do you accomplish that right so like put a heavy table in the center of the eating space large enough for a whole family or a group of people put a light over the table to create a pool of light over the group and enclose the space with walls or with contrasting darkness uh etc etc and then he goes on after that or they go on after that to point out a few patterns that relate to this pattern so that you can kind of cohesively or wholly con construct the, the space. Um, so, you know, patterns relating to that being pool of light, warm colors, different chairs, built-in seats, open shelves, waist-high shelves, things of that nature. Kind of cool. Those are, the, those are the ones that you would you would then flip to after that, and they're considered to be at a smaller scale than what you're looking at at the moment, and are elements that then begin to... Uh, right uh, make up that space right and then it's important to note that there are also patterns at a larger scale that are mentioned earlier on uh, such as communal eating or farmhouse kitchen um, this can be a part of those sorts of atmospheres so i think really the idea is that you you put forth this pattern and it sits within the context of other patterns right so it's never alone you can you always have to include it or work with it in terms of what is larger in the in the pattern food chain and what is smaller in the pattern food chain and eventually these patterns will sort of generate a building right so like they are sort of their own thing on their own but as you compile them they create this building or create this space it doesn't have to be a building i suppose but yeah so and and the other the other idea is that he tries or they try to get this thing to be as sort of not really vague but formless as possible so that you're really only dealing with the patterns and you can provide a form or an aesthetic to this pattern so they're trying to distill it down to this very basic level of what is an eating atmosphere what is what are these warm colors or different chairs or whatever it is that they reference and in that way it sort of becomes a word in a language uh similar to maybe uh you go to the definition and or a dictionary and find the definition of uh i don't know something i might like book right what's the definition of a book and then what how that book formalizes is could be extremely different across a variety of spectrums but it's always this like book at heart where it has this similar form to the root form right 
Right. So that, that's how it's a language. Yeah, and the strength of this is, as he points out numerous times, like, you can, it is is the ability that all these things have to relate to each other, and, and the idea how you how you work your way scaling down from the re- region or city scale uh, down into, like we were just talking about, which was this, this is space for eating, and then even further down into how how you start to describe what those shelves are and, and how those uh, should function more or less objectively. Right, and it, you can kind of see why maybe this isn't quite as popular with architects as... <laughs> maybe people who enjoy this show think it might be uh and mainly i think you know that sort of recipe like building just doesn't sit well with with how we're sort of taught to be this unique group or group of unique unique thinkers and creative thinkers where we just kind of want to do our own thing and not listen to other people so right having having rules prescribed to you about how you can do all these things is maybe a little um uh, too prescriptive than uh, what most uh, architects would want, or, or what you what we're maybe normally taught in terms of how you can think about space and how you can think right. about it coming together. But, but it, it seems like it's been taken up by other designers in terms of like digital designers. Um, apparently, Alexander is quite popular with digital designers as well as uh, object-oriented programming as well. In terms of like trying to figure out how to break up these logics into these smaller problems that can be built up into newer or into built bigger problems so that's that's where like this sort of bleeds out from architecture in terms of other designs and 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 hence the interest by uh or the interest in this architectural intelligence book right and i think it's important to to point out that they he builds a system into the book that talks about the level to which they think that each of these patterns within the language is truth basically or valid and so there's there's an asterisk system so if there's two asterisks next to the next to the name of the pattern then it means that they consider it to be like a truthful invariant that it's a base condition that is more or less true across culture across space time whatever else and that, that probably comes pretty strongly from a timeless way of building. You know, I'm looking at the four-story limit right here with two asterisks. And, you know, mind immediately, they have a picture of what looks like could be a town in Italy or France or something. And your, your thoughts immediately go to, like, Washington, D.C. or something along those lines in terms of uh, building heights and how, how you set up. A landscape, and then and then the points at which you puncture that landscape, perhaps with more height, to really define landmarks. But I think that it's it's really important to note that they 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 admit some degree of fallibility when it comes to some of the languages. So ones that have two, they think are invariants and are true across all these different realms. The ones that have one asterisk, they think it might be. But you know it's up for interpretation, and the ones that have two are more more open, and are they haven't necessarily found what that invariant is, but they have an idea. Right. No, I think yeah, that's definitely a huge component of that. That these are all, I think, or at least a majority of them are, I think, uh, submitted by the audience in a sense, right? Um, or submitted by other people who have observed these patterns and. Uh, right, or it's like a research team or something, and that's. 
like building this language yeah I, like you say it's important to note that it's not just alexander sitting here it's like the greatest thinker of all time writing out every single one of these things but it's a whole team that's compiling this right right and and then this is sort of even they state this is that this is sort of a dialect even of of a building language or a design language or whatever you want to call it right so that it's sort of this framework for thinking about or analyzing architecture and analyzing the design process in which you kind of distill these pieces down into their most basic component and then start to put them back together again and this is only one way essentially of doing that right so like as computer programmers uh, with their object-oriented languages have kind of adopted this in a way and broken their code into a variety of small patterns such as um, I don't know you can imagine uh, one object being an object that takes all the data from an, from a database and a second object being another object that kind of parses that data and becomes something else right so you're breaking it down into these different objects that contain information in different ways that's sort of how this pattern language is adopted in architecture so it's like two different languages um, but he even goes on to say that since architecture or design in general is so rooted in culture and the way that we understand and perceive the world through our cultures that you can imagine that each culture even would have a variety of different pattern languages to them right and yeah and they make the point that each you know this this is a pattern language and the reason it's called a pattern language like you said is that each person is going to have bring their own perspective to this and is each person's going to approach it a little bit differently and have their own patterns perhaps i mean and maybe it's a really postmodern way of thinking but have have their own perspectives that that they're that they're bringing to this and that they're creating their completely novel version of of how you interpret a pattern language and that so sequence of sitting spaces or, or whatever 142 is just something i quickly flip to maybe there's a different way in which one person interprets this from another and there's additional patterns that someone someone is going to add to this um that isn't that is sort of a different way of of seeing the sequence of sitting spaces it doesn't it doesn't really matter which one i'm talking about here but i wanted to circle back real quick before we dive into this a little bit more on what you were talking about in terms of architects yeah. finding fault and yeah. you had an interesting uh couple of quotes that i think you grabbed from molly right book. right and so so you can as we kind of stated that this isn't really enamored architects all that much or um, as much as it has other disciplines and other kind of design or, or computational fields. And it seems that part of the reason is because oftentimes, no matter, uh, or at least as stated in this book, oftentimes, no matter how sort of enthusiastic these architectural practitioners or students or academics or whoever is using this language are about kind of building an architecture out of these languages, oftentimes you get this sort of mundane or less creative um, to that extent architecture that just, you know, it's not super inspiring. It, it, it just is a building. And I, I imagine it's a functional building and a, a building that works okay, but it's not this sort of super interesting space. Uh, and so one quote that sort of takes that, and she uses this um, comparison between him and Peter Eisenman, with Eisenman being sort of the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of 
people who are potentially quote-unquote rational in their design thinking or design building or at least interested in rationality in their design process is and I'll, I'll read this straight from the book many architects believe in the intrinsic primacy and autonomy of architectural form but they are less apt to believe in a moral system that makes it that way and then and then that's where she kind of gets into eisenman with his deconstructivist tendencies where he sort of tries to rationally uh, rationally work through a building but kind of work in this sort of chaos and discomfort and and sort of try and trick the occupant versus uh alexander who sort of tries to find i guess in a sense the sort of soul of a building is how she kind of puts it in some places like a moral system that makes it that way and which is that sort of this is that language sort of a weird way of thinking about it i I hadn't really thought about it that way but i think everything else that this quote brings up in terms of like many architects believing in the intrinsic primacy and autonomy of architectural form to me really speaks volumes in terms of why this is not quite as acceptable in in the architectural practice or the architectural design field in general can you can you read the part where there there was one more a little bit uh, further on yeah feeling or something yeah i I think i had something okay so i'm thinking i'm getting somewhere but i want to okay yeah so so later on in this chapter it's a few paragraphs later um she goes on and and discusses this um what is it it's sort of this program or a conference at the harvard uh design school graduate school of design gsd so eisenman criticized alexander's pursuit of feeling in design arguing instead in favor of rationality alexander argued that architecture must embody harmony and comfort whereas eisenman stood up for disharmony and dissonance and then they go on to discuss quickly an example of that and bash each other yeah and bash each other (laughs) so i was I was thinking about that as, as you were just introducing that that other part that I don't think we had expanded on before prior to starting recording. We were talking about this briefly. But this this idea that Alexander is is really interested in the idea of comfort and and what are the ways in which I guess people naturally live and how we're gonna produce for that versus Eisenman Eisenman's idea with deconstructivism, I guess, maybe I'm just misinforming here, is about challenging the way that people see uh, the world. And I guess both sort of have the, the net idea of, and I'm going to try to lead into what I wrote a little bit about, of making the, the critical public, the mass, aware of the physical world around them and, and how it becomes constructed. So I guess if you're on Eisenman's side, you're saying if, if you don't challenge the way that people normally see the world, why are they ever going to be critical of what they see? Uh-huh. uh-huh. And, then, and then Alexander writes an entire book telling people how they can design the world. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. And I wrote, I wrote this whole article or piece about, you know, what happens when and I, I never really got anywhere with it what happens when people become aware and and have aware of of how space is constructed and have agency to do something about it and i don't know which one do you think accomplishes that better 
I mean, pattern language, I feel like it's kind of an academic book at this point, as stupid as that is. It was never designed to be that way. I mean, it, it, it's worked in terms of computer science, right? Except the, that's just the background for the book. That's just the formatting and the, and the structure of it. Like, does anyone care about using this architecturally? I don't, I don't know. I mean, so I guess you bring up like, oh, I brought up Rem's like elements, right? And, and to a certain extent, that's similar. Um, but it, it's much more, that's much more of like a construction or like truly, I don't know, physical version of this where you're not talking about feelings and things, you're talking about constructed elements that, that make up a building. So that, those right. sort and of languages. So maybe in terms of like truly trying to put together the feeling and like background or root level issues of a building, maybe not. Maybe that's sort of, not, not that I think we as designers don't do that anyway, I think it's just not something that's articulated in this way. I think maybe part of the pushback or part of the reason it's hard to use this book is you're kind of like, I think about this stuff regardless. I just don't think about it as rigorously as this book might pursue it or as rigidly even somebody right. say as this well, book. But we're approaching it as an architect. Like that's not what the book is supposed to be, right? This is supposed to be like people approaching it um, th the way that people approach Pinterest in, in like doing these DIY projects or whatever. That was no. sort of the analogy that I used. Yeah, but I, I don't think it's not meant for architects. No, I don't I don't think I don't think it's I agree because the point that I was gonna make was about how the whole book is basically like how should you design experiences for people and what are the key elements that you need to include for those different experiences. And you know circling back to that podcast we did maybe two weeks ago, I think at this point, Yeah. what exactly is that experience? And, and like, if we had just been in this book two weeks earlier, you know, that podcast probably would have been a lot better, but <laughs> yeah, um, perhaps that episode. So I think, yeah, I, I don't think it's not meant for architects, but as you pointed out, like maybe a lot of this is kind of intuitive for us. But at the same time, I think there still is a lot of detail that we can draw from. Yeah. I mean, the, the amount of detail in this is incredible, but I don't, I don't think that it's necessarily inaccessible as, as people say it is, or as, as it's seen, but you know, they, don't, good title. they don't have this up on their website. They don't have the website of this built. And this, this book just needs to be a website. Yeah, it'd be a fantastic website. It'd be kind of really cool to put this together as a website. Maybe we should do that. Pathic Features Labs interpretation of a pattern language on a website. Yeah, I mean that would be a lot of work. It we would could, be. We'd have to like type up the and that that sort of is going to lead into your your idea that you, that you wanted to talk about here. Yeah. But I wanted to make a couple more points. I think okay. on on this idea of how how pattern language is supposed to democratize the the functional part of design and so maybe maybe what it is is like this is really kind of a program guide it's like your client you're putting together a project of some scale and the book tells you what you need to relate to on the larger side yeah. but it also tells you what sort of aspects you need uh, in order for that to be a really functional space and so it, it really just feels like a program guide to me like you're putting together the pieces, and then you hire the architect to do aesthetic things, I guess. 
And so I would Yeah, I can see where you're coming from with that. Let's see. I make a couple points about how what does it mean to make people aware or make people more aware of the connections that that the scales of physical space has. And I was trying to think of points that in which people have become aware of how physical space works. And really the only good example I had was like DIY culture maybe. That was the only one that I thought of off the cuff. And like Pinterest or the idea, sort of the American dream, right? Uh, you go to the big box home improvement store and you're you're renovating and you're building your house. Uh-huh. But that always seems so... I don't think that there is ever a very strong connection to the other scales. Like you, you're always sort of working at most from your lawn inwards and you don't really care what's going on in the sidewalk what's going on in the street maybe and so my my thought was maybe maybe what pattern language does best is in terms of making the public critically aware is is aware that there's these connections beyond just your individual plot of land but you're making these connections to everything else and i don't think that alexander would necessarily argue for what has become of suburbia and that you have your disconnected house from from the rest of uh, all the other houses around you and you're completely disconnected from the downtown area you're just sort of connected by this car transport corridor well the that, road. that's sort of that's sort of an entirely different language probably than this language that he used he probably used this it seems like he used more of a british type language uh, Maybe from my from my very shallow understanding of it, not yeah, shallow, yeah, I but that's a quick, different language. quick read through of the patterns. Yeah, no, I, suburbia is sort of its own thing, probably, where you're you're looking at arterial roads and and smaller roads and strip malls, and it, it's just its own form. It's kind of this gross gross sprawl of a thing. Yeah, here, here. People need an identifiable spatial unit to belong to. And then there's this picture of a suburban landscape, aerial view, and it just shows house after house after house. But it says, today's pattern of development destroys neighborhoods. So yeah, he's clearly, they're clearly favoring a certain type of living. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure there's a bias to this. But anyway, what your, your larger point was, how do you, how do you get people to understand or how do you get people to participate in, in understanding their environment? Right, and so you have the Eisenman approach, which was kind of about telling, showing people that there's different ways to approach environment, and then you have the, the approach from Alexander, which is about giving people a manual for understanding. Right. And, it, and it's sort of this, to me, especially if you think about it as this Eisenman is sort of about this disharmony and, and sort of suspending belief and making it seem like it shouldn't be the way it is or trying to confuse you in a way versus uh, Alexander just trying to come up with exactly what makes up the built environment. It almost seems like Eisenman, as much as I hate to say it, would have a better, not better, but would get you to notice the environment more just because it's different, right? Just because just because it looks like it shouldn't be the way it is and therefore you kind of notice that something's out of place versus maybe if you're following this... this uh, language or following this sort of inherent language to to a space you're maybe not going to notice it as notice it as much because everything's sort of in harmony and sort of in flow 
Um, there's nothing that's sort of taking you out of that flow. You're just kind of in it and comfortable. And I think you wouldn't notice it as much that way. Right. You wouldn't notice it as much because it's it's kind of natural. And that's what the whole book wants is to right. feel natural. Right. It's this um, whole idea that you, you don't notice until it's broken. Right. But is that good enough reason to make intentionally bad places? <laughs> no. <laughs> my, maybe my bias is showing. I think occasionally maybe it fits in well with like a museum or, or some one-off building. But, but that's... Yeah, that's about creating a space that is meant to make you think versus sitting down and having a coffee somewhere. Does it need that sort of quality to it? I mean, maybe sometimes it does. Maybe that's not a problem. And maybe Alexander allows for that sort of interpretation to exist, which is about challenging or confusing environments. Maybe not as a whole, but as as a whole, but as a portion of it. Do you have anything else? Anywhere else you want to go with this? Well, I'm trying to think if I can lead into into your idea, and I think I think that I can. So we're talking about this this idea of dialect, or, or how different people approach the language. Yep. And one of the things that we've discussed in the past, and you brought up this idea of advanced pattern languages, and I think that's kind of where where you're leading into, maybe, is about how do you add on to this? So like this is a pattern language, but it's specifically for city building, building buildings, uh, building spaces within buildings, maybe the spaces between buildings. And that's, that's what this book is all about. But, you know, as, as we've talked so many times, as we move into this realm where we're not dealing with just physical space, but we're dealing with a lot of aspects beyond the physical environment, how do you start to add to that? And I think him and his group laying out the process of how they did this and all the background and a timeless way of building of what exactly how you approach this i think that um it makes it kind of almost easy in a way because you, you have the format like yeah. all you have to do is follow this format that already yeah. exists and then you can just start adding and we could maybe start with like five or ten new patterns that start to define the ways in which you approach uh, the design of combined physical digital spaces, right? Right, right. no, that's, that's a good point. And right. I think we've already, and you, we could, I mean, this has a number of languages. You could call it a pattern. You could call it a first principle, whatever. Like this is 253 first principles of city and building design. And you could, we could really start to approach it that way. And maybe we write a couple pieces on it and be like digital pattern number, advanced pattern language number pattern number one or whatever the the space of the digital realm should be identifiable when overlaid in the physical realm right maybe that's number one or whatever right no i think that's a really good point become aware of that yeah no i think that's a really good point that is as technology evolves and as we evolve as a society we're going to have to evolve our language in a way that sort of encompasses these new things right we have to put words to them and we have to put forms to them and and feelings and and sort of these spatial features to them we have to we have to figure that out at some point i think that's not that's something that i even in writing through this i hadn't really thought of Um, right and yeah i think that point about digital physical interaction and and how do we get that to how do we get to fall out that's going to be super huge in terms of developing a language for that right and pattern language and timeless way of building is founded on thousands of years of development right and the design of digital space like it took what so so pattern language came after 
2,000 years of architectural development. Yep. And the design of digital spaces had about 15 or 20. <laughs> yeah, well... So yeah, yeah. we got a ways to go, but I don't think it's bad to start thinking about it. No, definitely not. We're going to have to think about it no matter what. And I think what's, you know, this was sort of derivative approach in terms of like he was deriving these languages and patterns from observations of the real world and the way that the right. world works. And we haven't really had as much of a chance to derive a language from digital physical worlds and, and sort of these new interactive worlds that we live in now. Um, so I think it'll happen regardless. It just might happen a little better if we're aware of it and sort of willing to put together the pieces in this way. I totally agree. And I, I was hoping that would kind of lead into what you wanted to yeah, talk and about. And I think, I think there's a lot to unpack here. And this maybe is a two-parter just because we're already almost at 40 minutes. Uh, well, so maybe we, we hang on for next week. Well, I think, I think we unpack a little bit of this now, and then we can push forward later. Um, so I think one way that... So what I really started to do when, when thinking about this episode, right, because, because I think oftentimes this happens where you sort of get stuck in this sort of metaphor, and you keep pushing the metaphor until at some point it doesn't make sense, but you're still pushing the metaphor. And, you're like, and, and then you have to step back and be like, why am I still stuck in this metaphor? No longer is it makes sense for what I'm trying to accomplish. So I'm like, how far can we push this metaphor of languages, right? And if we are to like stick to this language, metaphor, language, whatever, um, you kind of get stuck with this idea of like style guides, right? So when you're writing papers, you have you have obviously the rules of grammar that limit how you use language in an acceptable way. But you also have style guides like the Chicago Manual of Style, right? Where like it talks about ways in which it's acceptable for this certain style to start to put language together, put citations together, source information, create bibliographies, what sort of formatting do you use with like indentations and spaces between paragraphs and chapters and whatnot. And there are a variety of those. Not to mention that different genres have slightly different styles as well. But I think you can start to extrapolate that to how we've approached architecture in the past. Right, so uh, even going back to the Greeks and Romans, they had their own style guides, right? With the column capitals, right? The Greek, one were they? There's the classical capital and then the different capital and then the Corinthian capital, Doric. Doric and Corinthian, yeah. So they had their own style guides in terms of when to use those, when to put architectural spaces together with that. And I think... You could even kind of follow that all the way up until even modernism, Corbu sort of put together a style guide in terms of uh, towards a new architecture, looking at machinery, looking at these sort of really industrial mass-produced spaces. It's something that I think it's, it's just kind of just been there, and we haven't really put words to it as much, but now maybe this is sort of looking at that from a really basic standpoint and trying to figure out this sort of universal language in a way as opposed to looking at it from like a what's a modernist language what's a baroque language what's a gothic language yeah 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 so so it's kind of thinking about that and then also like um but anyway yeah so thinking about it that way in terms of like these are the languages but then these languages obviously evolved and our language has obviously evolved so how, where do we where do we go from here where do we how do we pick up new things for our language right um and i think i started kind of thinking about this as like slang and like you know slang words come up and and i don't know some of the more recent ones like like lit or or woke which is kind of hilarious <laughs> to me like kyrie irving being like super woke as a basketball player but like these are all words that like it's just sort of added to the language and how we're using or even emojis and 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 these yeah. abbreviations like OMG, they sort of like fit the 
fit the zeitgeist of the time, uh, which is a terribly nerdy word for something that's much less, much more pop culture-y. Yeah, so that's kind of where I took this, thinking about thinking about that. What's like, you know, we, we kind of go into this, there have been multiple presentations at U of I over the years that, while we've been there, where I feel like I've seen these flyers for like hip-hop architecture, and it's always this like, I don't know what the best way to put it is, but it's always like looking into sort of this pop art kind of architecture and this sort of African-American architecture and and how how does like hip hop culture sort of influence the design in that way. But I wonder if we could also look at hip hop architecture in in a purely a language way in terms of how does hip hop construct their songs and create new words and slang for uh, the common vernacular language. Right. And is that something that we can sort of start to look at in terms of like, what is, can we start to pull together like installations and, and other um, interventions such as that, that start to create a hip hop architecture. And this is purely a metaphor, purely a simile or metaphor at this point where like hip hop architecture is referring to the language and the language of like, what is slang in architecture? How do you create these new patterns where like Alexander's defining these these patterns between between patterns or these relationships between patterns that kind of lead in these set ways every time, right? And that makes sense. That's something that, you know, is, is as you said, drawn out and, and taken out of thousands of years of development. These patterns make sense with each other, but then could slang architecture in a similar way to like slang in language start to break down these patterns and build them up in ways where it's like, well, that is now a verb, right? That is now a noun. That, that word is now used completely differently. Where, where, how, do we, how do we develop architectural or design languages or design moves that are just, that make sense now, but they're different? They're like, so how do, you, how do you continue to answer the spirit of the time, basically? And how does that influence how the language evolves? Right. In a sense, yeah, I think that's the question. So what does it mean? So maybe maybe that's the idea for the installation, is that you, you, you sort of build this, this architectural, this, this truthful architectural object that's, that's founded in historical pattern language. But then you start to question how, how that evolves relative to um, the spirit of the time for instance right so like how does today's architectural slang influence the way in which you you see these pattern languages i'm just kind of summarizing what you said i guess but i i think that's a really pretty fascinating idea i'm trying to think of a good good response for that yeah well i think you may need more time i don't know yeah well and i think um that this idea of like advanced pattern languages maybe advanced pattern language isn't the right word for it because if if we're really if we're really kind of trying to delve into this idea of pattern language right it's a language and it sort of should be able to generate everything within the bounds of this language right um just sort of like english i don't know if we're really advanced english compared to like 1700s english in terms of like we're just a more advanced language as much as it's just kind of evolved language and some things have dropped up, dropped off and some things are still in it. But I wonder if, if this idea of like advanced languages is more of like these patterns are still useful now and these patterns are maybe too simplistic or these relationships are maybe too simplistic for what we're capable of these days. I don't know if that makes sense. What do you mean? I, I guess I'm just, I'm, I'm looking at things like, 
or what kind of sparked this idea of advanced pattern languages is it seems like in design we're constantly uh, falling back on this idea well we're gonna orient this tower towards views we're gonna increase our natural light uh, we're gonna we're gonna have this giant grand entrance so people know where we are and these are like these sort of language things that that people intuitively know right if there's this big canopy you kind of know it's the entry if Mm-hmm. Um, if you're designing a skyscraper, you kind of know you want to orient the good apartments towards the views. And it seems like those are just sort of this, like, maybe not overused, but it's something that is inherently understood and inherently a part of our architecture now. And it's like, are we are we at a point where we can kind of push beyond that and say, I want to look a little more deeply into what it means. Why do we keep falling back on those quick hitters of language pieces or, or it's just something that's always thought of always done not I mean, not because it's bad in any sense it's good we should be doing that sort of thing but it's like it's, we know how to do it already so let's I mean, do that and something else maybe that's sort of the eisenman it's like so you you construct a space but there's there's multiple there's multiple ways in which those patterns within the language could be configured um, and give it hierarchy for that, right? Yeah, well... Um, so in the case of, like, the the apartments in the tower, maybe you don't take it as, like, one block, like good apartments or whatever. Maybe you're sort of breaking those down into different groups and they each have their own hierarchy within them. Yeah, but I, I don't want to say that it's the Eisenman approach necessarily because I think you can retain a lot of what makes that comfortable and what makes that familiar. Um, I think you just add on to it. It's more of an additional approach than a necessarily breeding disharmony or discord in, in the design. Maybe just alternatives. Alternatives like, and, and additions. So you have like 50, like pattern number 50, and there's like 50.1, 50.2, 50.3. Yeah, it could be that, or it could just be it's entirely like, new ones. And, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it'd be worth looking at these relationships and trying to understand them and trying to understand which ones are still relevant, which ones are not relevant to our culture. Mainly yeah, because... I mean, that's things that we're going to lose. Like, a language loses words just as it gains them. Right, but the words still exist. They still mean the same thing. People just don't use them anymore. Right, but if you don't use it, then how relevant is it? True. True. Yeah, I think that'd be something to look into. Which ones of these are still relevant, which ones are not. And what we need to add and how, how you, where that gets added. Because, like, you don't just add to to this. Like, it, it's it's a constructed method for how, how you get from one point to the next. Oh, yeah, that was something I was thinking about. Like, adding words to a language, uh, the this is a complete backtrack. But I, it, was, it was kind of funny. Uh, I was thinking about, like, how do installations help develop architectural slang? And I was wondering if we can even consider things like, you know, they had those like lichen or whatever fungus bricks from that living, the living installation at PS1 a few years ago. And everyone kind of loved that these bricks were made out of fungus and can disintegrate or materials. Yeah. Or like shipping containers being a fad. And, and those, I guess, aren't really patterns in the sense that Alexander was talking about them because they're so rooted in this one material and it's so super formal as opposed to as opposed to his patterns being much more, I don't know, principle-esque and, and, and more about the root cause. But, but I, I, that's, I mean, that's, that's a good point, though, because it's about, it's about the, the reuse or manipulation of material, and that's very much part of the language right now. Yeah, yeah, but it... it 
it's a sort of a a quick hit at term i'm trying to figure out like where have we seen fads where have we seen quick different uses of things and as part of the design language but those are more formal trends i guess i don't know yeah. where we can see like actual language trends i think that's something we'd have to define at some point too yeah all right well thanks for listening everyone as stated join our newsletter i think it It'd be worthwhile. Hopefully we'll make it worth your while. Comes out on Fridays. Nope, we'll have some good stuff in there. Yeah. Well, anyway, take care. Uh, We'll see you next week. Yep.